If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the first chapter of the book of John. We began last week with the testimony of John the Baptist that two weeks ago, that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and then last week that he did not know him except that the one who had sent him to baptize had told him that the one upon whom he sees the Spirit descending and remaining is the Messiah. So last week we looked at the first part of this section from 29 to 34 of how, what does it mean to know Jesus? How, how do you become, how do you know Jesus? John the Baptist, who was a prophet, knows Jesus the same as we know Jesus. John the Baptist, who is the cousin of Jesus Christ, did not know that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, except that God said, upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is the Messiah. And when he saw it, then he testified, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And later he says, this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist comes to, to Jesus the same as we come to Jesus. So we, that's what we saw last week. Let's uh, just to, to prompt that in our mind, this is uh, from Matthew 16. Jesus answered to, to Peter. Uh, he had asked Peter, who do men say that I am? Peter said, well, some thinks you're Elijah. Some people, maybe one of the prophets or, or John the Baptist. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at Jesus and said, you are Jesus, the son of God. You're the Messiah of God. You're God's Messiah, the king of Israel. And Jesus responds in verse 17 and answers and said to him, blessed art thou, Simon, bar Jonah, son of John, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it to you, but my father, which is in heaven. It requires God to show Jesus to you. You can share Jesus with people. You can tell people your testimony. You can say what has happened to you. And it may stop some people in their tracks long enough to consider. Most people will just continue on. They won't even, they'll stop, they won't even stop. But it does allow you to be faithful to God by just telling people what has happened in your life. But it does require that God does something in order for that person to receive Jesus and come to Jesus themselves. That's why that you not only testify, and by the way, you don't testify of yourself, you testify of, of God, just like John doesn't testify of himself, he testifies of Jesus. There's the, the, the Messiah, there's the Son of God, there's the Lamb that takes away sin. We do the same from our own personal experience, and that can't be argued with. Your personal experience is your testimony can't be argued with. But with that testimony, and, and sometimes your testimony in people's lives are over countless years, years and decades of living in front of people, living in front of people. Paul tells, uh, tells Christian ladies whose, whose husbands are not Christian, don't divorce them. Stay with them. Live in front of them. Be subject to them. Who knows that God will not save their souls because of your testimony? That's what he said. Who knows? You live in front of them, you live in front of them, you live in front of them, and by your life, your testimony. And now, that really does keep you on your toes. If my testimony is long-term, 
When it's shot in the dark, one flash in the pan, I can say something and, and think my testimony is the words that I spoke. No, my testimony is my life, and my words only amplify what my life is. And if my life is showing people that I'm a flip-floppy and I'm backwards and I'm, and I'm a, a two-faced and a hypocrite, well, then my words are actually a shame. I'm bringing blaspheme on God's name. I'm not, I'm not beautifying the gospel. But if you're living in genuine trust of a Savior who loves you and you're increasingly knowing of God's loving kindness and you're enjoying your salvation and then you speak, those words are powerful, but they still will not take anyone to the Lord. It requires God to do that. So I would say you must pray for people and witness with your lives. Those people that God has put on your heart, your first job is to ask the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and let them see. Let them see the Spirit descending upon Jesus and remaining upon him. That, with your testimony, is powerful. It's amazing that somehow you, we will be rewarded for that kind of, of labor. That labor which is nothing. That labor which is not labor. God does it all and then rewards us for simply living the way that we're delighted to live, and that's independence of God, sharing Jesus with people who are lost. Like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. There's no merit in that. There's no bragging about that. It is simply you, are, you want for them what you know you have for yourself. And because of that, there's power. Now, that was the first thing. So when I looked at this passage, let's read it first, and then I'll again remind you what I wrote down as my comments of it. So let's, let's go, first of all, to John chapter 1. We're going to read from 29 to 34. Then I'm going to pause and we're going to read a second passage in Matthew, which, remember, John is alluding to the baptism, but doesn't talk about the baptism. Only says that when he was baptized, I saw the Spirit descending. That's all John says. So we'll go in, in, in Matthew as well. So here is John 1, 29. The next day, John seeth Jesus unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man, which is preferred before me, because he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come now baptizing with water. John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bare record that this is the Son of God. Okay, so let's go to... Let's go to Matthew chapter 3 and read from uh, verses 13 through 17. Okay, so Matthew 3. Starting in 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying... I have need to be baptized of thee, and camest thou unto me? Jesus answered, said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, 
for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, in a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. My goodness, how wonderful is that? My goodness, how much does God love his Son? How much does God love his Son? The story of this Bible is the story of God's love for his Son. And we are the beneficiaries of that. We are not the center of this book. We are not the main character in this story. The story of the universe is that God loves Jesus Christ. And we will be a kingdom unto him that will be forever eternally praising him for what he has done in our lives, really in our lives, because of his love to us, to usward. Okay? The, the love towards us is manifest, but it's all based in God's love for Jesus. As God gives him a kingdom. Now, why God, in his love for Jesus, would give me as a, as a prize to Jesus, I do not know. But that was his will. Hallelujah that he would include us. That we would not be what we should be. But because of his loving kindness, he has extended to us in Christ mercy and allowed us to see what our need was and to see the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove and remaining upon him. And it changes our lives. It cleans us, we read in Colossians today. It cleans us, purifies us. We are redeemed through his blood. That is, that is remarkable. That's the gospel. That is what we preach. We simply preach that Jesus is God and that Jesus comes to us in our need. Not because of anything we've done. Not to pay us off in any way. But only because of who he, he is. So my four questions that I wrote down in this passage. Now this is again the passage in John with my background thought in Matthew, is how did John come to know Jesus? And that's what we spent last week looking at, through the power of the Holy Spirit, just like we come to know Jesus. Number two, three, and four we'll do today. The second one I wrote is, why did Jesus come to John for baptism? Which is an amazing question. I think probably most Christians have thought about it. Why would Jesus even need to be baptized? Isn't baptism some kind of a repentance sign what is it? How did Jesus, Jesus doesn't repent. What is going on there? Is Jesus' baptism different in some way than ours or than, than John's baptism? Number three, I wrote, what does baptism of Jesus teach us about God's salvation of sinners? Again, I will not stand up here without teaching you the gospel. I am Johnny One Note, and that is all that I will ever share. The gospel is that God sent Jesus to live for us and to die for us and to be our acceptance in him, that we would be in the beloved, accepted in the beloved because of what God has done through Christ's obedience to him and through God the Trinity's will that Jesus showed and earned for us. So what does it teach about salvation? And then the last important question is, what are the differences between John's baptism, Jesus' baptism, 
and Christian baptism because there are distinct differences between all three. They're not the same in any way. There are similarities, but they are not the same. So what are those similarities? So let's start then with why did Jesus come to John for baptism? Now, it says there in Matthew when we read that, that Jesus said back to John, because John had said, no, no, I'm not going to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. But, but why would you come to me to be baptized? Now, John, not at the moment knowing that Jesus was Messiah, because he testified twice in our passage that he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah, but he did know that Jesus was righteous. He did know because he grew up knowing he knew that this boy was different than the other boys, and that he was different than any that he had met, and that this man was a righteous man. And he was calling people to repent, and he couldn't imagine why Jesus would come to repent because his heart was towards God already. In John's mind, it was that there was sin, and you have to reestablish your, your desire to go to towards God, that God might do something through your repentance. And this was a sign of your repentance. So he didn't understand. John was scratching his head. But, but Jesus, knowing that he himself was a righteous man, did not come as a repenter. Jesus wasn't repenting when he came. But he does answer John and said, let us do it now. Suffer it. Allow it. Allow that you would baptize me here in this water, in front of all of these thousands of people, right now teeming at the shore. Let it do because it is right, it becometh us, King James, it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. In order for rightness to be done, in order for it to be proper, we need to do this. It's proper that I do this and that not only that I'm baptized, but that you baptize me. So I want to involve you, please allow it. And John allows it. So John is then immerses Jesus in the river. Now, we are a Baptist church, and our main distinctive, and there's lots of distinctions of a Baptist church, is that we truly believe that baptism has a picture. It's so theological that he went down into the water because the next verse says that he came up out of the water. And we'll see that there's symbolism, there's pictures, there's, there is, there's things that we are claiming with this. That he was immersed. He went down to where every part of him was covered with water. There was water in every pore of his body. There was wa water on every strand of hair. There was water up his nose. There was water everywhere. He went down into the water. He was baptized in the water. And there, there is... I. I I don't know truly any Baptist that should die on that hill, but that is proper because there is theology, strong theology there, because not, not because practice, church practices are so important, but what happened when he became completely in the water and what we claim when we go completely in the water is, is a strong statement that we'll look at in a second. So he didn't come as a baptizer. You have to realize that one of the main things that John is writing to in his first century letter is to a heresy that had spread through the early first century called Gnosticism. And John, it's all about it. In fact, there isn't, there isn't a chapter that doesn't touch it. There's none of his letters that don't touch it. 
It's everywhere. It is a false religion that was everywhere, and it was embedded in every church, and it was the apostles were frantic because it was like a cancer that was eating the church alive. And Gnostics had this idea that Jesus became God at his baptism, that the Holy Spirit allowed him to become God. Now, you almost see a Star Wars kind of thing with this, that Jesus was a man, and as a man, he needed to clean up before he could become God. I mean, there's all like kind of freaky stuff here, but this is not very far from the religion of this country, that Jesus was just like anybody and that God allowed him to become God and that he became God. And then later they said that he did not stay God because God can't die. God could not die on a cross. So he expired on the cross and the Holy Spirit left him before he died and then he died. Now, first of all, that strips the gospel of the gospel. It completely destroys the gospel. There's a little bit of, of corn in the rat poison. I need you to know that. Every time you hear a lie, every time you hear a serious heresy, something that will strangle your faith, don't think that there's not any truth in it. Of course there's some truth in it because the, you have to get something for the rats to eat. They're not going to eat the poison. But you can kill a rat by feeding it corn with poison on it, and that's what, that's what the devil does in all false religions. It allows people to think that they're doing right because they're religious, but yet it's strangling them because there is no gospel to save them. There is no God to protect them. There is no Jesus who is God that can die for them. All it is is just a fairy tale made up as people want to manipulate each other. And this was a horrible heresy, and John wanted you to know that this was not what he was talking about. If you go back to, to Luke chapter 1, Jesus was born God. He was always God. Now, John starts his gospel, he was forever God. He was with God and he was God. He preceded all eternity. He was before the beginning. So there was a forever God who is Jesus Christ and this is God that's living with us. That's what John is trying to, to show. Luke 132 says, he shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David. The son of the highest, he is God. That's what the Bible teaches. So Jesus didn't come as a repenter. Jesus didn't come to clean his sins so that God could then use him. He's not like me. Jesus Christ is not like me. But boy, he is like me. That's my only hope is because he's like me. He's like me so he can die for me. But he's not like me. He doesn't need to repent and clean his sins away in the muddy Jordan River. Okay, you remember Naaman who had leprosy and the prophet told him to go dip in the Jordan River and his leprosy would be gone and he was disgusted and he said, are there not cleaner rivers in, in Syria that I could go? Do I have to go to the mud hole to get clean? You don't go to the mud hole to get clean and Jesus didn't go, need to go to the mud hole to clean off his, his, his scum because he didn't have any scum. He came for a far different reason. He said it was it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. So I'm going to, I could go here, I could live here for three weeks, I promise you. I'm going to scrunch it and move on and leave you hanging, okay? That's what I'm going to do. I wrote down five things. The first thing I wrote down, this was a moment of affirmation for Jesus Christ, the man. Okay? 
because you have to realize Jesus Christ is a man. God forever, not God when at some point. He was forever God who became a man, but was always God and still is. But as a man, he was living as a man. He divested himself, not of his, he did not divest himself of his deity, but he did not live in his deity because we can't live in our deity. I have no deity to live in that keeps me clean with God. I must rely on the Holy Spirit like Jesus lived and relied on the Holy Spirit. So this was an affirmation. He was the chosen one, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Son of David, and the Son of God. And Jesus knew it because the heavens opened up to him. And the voice came from the glory saying, you are my son and I love you. You are so pleasing. I'm perfectly pleased with you. So that was an affirmation. Jesus was going to go down a hard road to Jerusalem. And he needed it. He needed God's Holy Spirit to hold him. He needed it. And God gave him what he needed. We read in Isaiah today, I will put my spirit upon you and you will do great things. And that's what happened. He was empowered as a man for a very specific task, a task that no other man has ever done, that Adam could not do in his innocence. Jesus was going to do. In God's people who were called out of Egypt to be God's people and failed Jesus was there as God's son, not failing. He was the Adam who didn't blow it. He was the people of God who didn't blow it. He lived as God required us to live and did not blow it. He was worthy to be our savior. And the, thing, the third thing I wrote down is at that moment when the sky opened up and he came out of that water that he had been immersed in, he knew that that was the role. He was to take over the role of being the savior of the world. He came fully knowing what he was doing. He knew it. At every point, God was there. At every point, when he needed to know something, he knew it. When he needed to feel something, he felt it. When he needed to keep going, he kept going. Because God was there supporting him. So he was, he was empowered, and he, it was his moment to take the role of Savior. And then I wrote, it was the moment that marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Empowered ministry. Miracles, teaching, preaching, and sacrificing himself on the cross. And that takes the Holy Spirit to do, because Jesus is a man. Now, some people would turn their nose at that. Because you're, you're making him less. No, God made him a man. God made him the propitiation through faith in his blood that would turn away his wrath. And it had to be a man because men sinned and it was, took a man to pay for those sins. And God did that. And then number five, it was the moment that John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah because John had that particular job of not just forecasting the future, but pointing specifically to the Messiah and telling people in real time, that's him, you go, follow him. And people from that next verse, you're going to see, dropped everything, dropped following John, and followed Jesus instead. And most people believe it was John the Apostle was one of those. That John the Apostle had followed John the Baptist, and all of a sudden now he was following Jesus. 
and went from then on and everything was first person because John was with Jesus from the first. I wrote down 1 Samuel 16, 1. Let's look at this and you see why I did. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king from among his sons. I have provided myself a king from among his sons. Now, you're going to see that that is in chapter 16. And David does not become, there's 24 chapters in 1 Samuel, and he doesn't become king until chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, and then he's only king of one tribe, and he's not even a fully king until chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. Years and years and years go by when he has been anointed king but yet not crowned. I believe that the Holy Spirit upon his baptism was his crown. He was coronated that day. There will be a time that we will all acknowledge it. We will all say, here's my crown. You take my crown. You take my crown. You take my crown. Why did you even give me a crown? What in the world have I deserve a crown for? It's so we could give it to the Lord. We, are going to, we will coronate him, but God Almighty is the crowner. And he crowned Jesus Christ as he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and that's radiance of diadem. It shines out of Jesus. For the rest of his, his earthly life, nobody can mistake it. His enemies hated him with hatred that couldn't be explained. And people were attracted to him. They had no idea why. Because there was nothing in him that made you attracted to him. Isaiah said there was nothing about him that made us want him except that he's God living in a man. And not as the Gnostic thought that God was living in a man, but as God taught and that Jesus is a man who's living as God who is God. Now that is why we will always be mocked. Christians will always be mocked. And you want to know what the churches will be like in 100 years? Probably way far less than this if there are churches. But there will be Christians. Till Jesus comes, there'll be Christians, and the gospel will go forth in power until Jesus comes. That is for sure. Number three, what does baptism of Jesus teach us about God's salvation of sinners? See, David was anointed privately. Only his family knew. Nobody else knew. Saul didn't know. Saul figured it out. Because where is God's blessing? That's where God's anointing is. He knew that his crown was going to be given to one of his neighbors better than him, but that's all he knew. Then he figured out, ah, it's him. Because he could see it. God was upon David's life. Even though that Saul was hunting him, he was upon him. And Jesus did this with every, in front of everybody. And the whole crowd was being baptized. Jesus came to be baptized also, Luke said. Also. Now that's interesting. As though he was one of us. He was one of us, but he was not baptized as the rest were baptized. Jesus was identifying with humanity. He was putting himself with humanity, humanity that needed repenting, that needed to return to God, that God would, would do something for them, that they would be saved. Saved is not something you do yourself. You don't save yourself. You are saved. That's passive even in grammar. That means you don't do anything. You are saved by some external, not you thing. 
And that's God himself that's doing this. And Jesus identified himself as human. He was willing to take on the sins of the world. See, the people that were being baptized had no righteousness. That that was my prayers this morning. As I got up and went to my knees, I said, God, I have no righteousness. Jesus has all righteousness. And I was happy. Do you see? My prayers didn't make me happy. The gospel that is true made me happy. Because I don't ever claim to be any more than I ever was. God said Jesus was always what he was, and he was clean. And he came into that water not to be cleaned by that water. I'm going to throw this out. I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I'm going to say it anyway. I see Jesus being polluted by that water. I'm seeing Jesus in a completely backwards baptism. Because Jesus speaks of baptism two more times. Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? He's talking to Peter and John who wants to be big shots. Are you willing to be baptized? Because I'm I'm going to a baptism. I'm going to a baptism. Jesus had no sin. And he was immersed in that water, identifying with humanity that he was going to take on all of the sins that symbolic was coming away from those people in the water. He was taking it upon himself because God does not look at us and forgive us for Jesus' sake. God put our sins on Jesus and destroyed Jesus. That is the gospel. The gospel is not that, Jesus, that God looks the other way and, and loves everybody. God destroyed his son for people who will repent of their sins and turn to him, and that changes their life. There are a few that find the road, a few, not all, not everybody that claims it, certainly. You repent of your sins in an attempt to not do anything. You're not turning God's hand, but you're doing something he commanded you of. You are confessing that you are indeed a sinner and in need of a savior, and you look to the savior that the gospel said was real. And in your faith that God gives you, you simply give him that faith, and that's considered works in in James's eyes. James's eyes is you do something, you live something, you do something based upon what's true in your life. And all that faith is is that Jesus is good enough to save my soul, and I will go out for in, into eternity on that. That's enough to hold me. Nothing else. Everything else will burn. And that will hold me. I will go all the way to glory on that. That is baptism. He baptized into the sins of the world and took them upon himself that anybody that would look upon him and say, he's worthy to be my savior and I'm not worthy to be my savior, God says, you have earned your salvation through the work that Jesus did for you. Now that is shocking. That is absolutely appalling to most people. And that is my only hope. That is thrilling to me. It is thrilling to me. Jesus was baptized into the very wrath of God. He stood in front of the very wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. That's what we just sang. Shielding, taking fully the wrath of God upon him 
in every pore, every pore, every strand of hair, every part of his body was covered in the sins that God destroyed him for. And he stood with humanity to be our savior. <sighs> My goodness, I'm exhausted now. Isn't that thrilling to talk about something so important? To talk about something so important. For you that don't know God, it's your only important thing. And for those who know God, remind yourself that's the only important thing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, I can face tomorrow. I can face tomorrow because of what he's done. That is, that's beyond belief. I wrote down four words. When I uh, tried to teach kids English, one of the things I tried to do is I would try to have a word and then make them try to think of every other word that was related to that word. So I wrote down the word apathy. Have you ever heard the word apathy? If you're apathetic, you have no interest in anything, okay? I teach teenagers. Apathy is like the poster child. They're like, yeah, whatever. Okay, that's apathy. No interest. You know, convince me that this is even slightly interesting. That's all, all I get all day. Interest is no interest, no, no feeling. There's no feeling in your heart about somebody else's welfare. No feeling at all. Okay? Now, some people think that God is apathetic. That God doesn't care. God is just there being God. And he leaves us in our little wallow of sin and an and awful world and bad things happen to us and people die and people get sick and people are murdered and people are abused and God must not even have it. If God is God, he must not care. I've heard that a trillion billion times, that God's apathetic. I would say that it's much scarier than that. According to the gospel, I'm an offender of God. I'm a offender of God's dignity and he should not be apathetic. He should be antipathetic. Antipathy means that he's opposed to me, that he should look at me and have feelings of rage for me. That's what should happen. That is justice. And if God is justice, that should happen. And God hates sinners all day long, says, says Psalms. Well, that's terrifying. Nobody likes that. That's not a gospel anybody wants to think. But see, God is antipathetic and loving kindness comes out of his heart so that he destroyed his son so that those of, the us, those of us who've offended God and should have God's rage and antipathy, instead, you might say, what do we have? I wrote down two other words. I wrote down empathy and I wrote down sympathy. And then I had to go to the definition, I had to go to the dictionary because I'm like, I think I know what that means. And I went to the dictionary. <laughs> Empathetic means God understands. Okay, well, I like that he understands my pain, that he understands my need, that he understands that I'm in need of him, that he understands that I'm a sinner and that I'm going to hell, that he understands. But I need more than that. I need more than that. That God would understand that I'm a ruined sinner won't save me. Do you understand that? Won't save me. Because God can understand and do nothing. But if you understand with the idea of doing something about it, that's called sympathy. And God has a heart that feels our pain. God has a heart that feels what we feel. 
because God went into that water and took upon the sins of the world upon him, and that is sympathy. He sympathized with me. He intends to do something about my need, and he intended to be my savior. Sacrifice you do not desire, you read today, but you have prepared a body for me. I come to do your will, O God. Send me, Jesus said. I come to be their savior because they need it. They have to have it. They don't just understand that these people are ruined and will never know bliss. They'll only know torture. That's not enough. A God that's really God is a God of loving kindness is more than understanding. He is sympathetic. He came and took our sins upon himself and became our savior on purpose. Jesus was baptized as a display of sympathy. That's what he was displaying. He was his display. It was a picture of his sympathy with us that all things would go together. The last thing is what does the what are these baptisms? How are they different? How are they the same? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was saying, it was saying that I want to prepare myself for what God has for me, and that I want to put away my gods. Remember what Joshua said? Put away your gods so that God will allow you to go and have something. He wants to give you something. You need to empty your hands so that you'll have empty hands to receive what God is going to give you. That's what John was doing. He said you must empty yourself of your sins that you might have the ability to receive the king when he comes. That's John's baptism. Jesus' baptism was taking upon the sins of the world upon him and identifying with us because he is the son of man. And Christian baptism is identifying ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because when he went into the water, he died. And when he came out of the water, he was risen. And we die as we are put into the water. It's a symbol that we died to ourselves. Everything about me that displeases God died when I died. And when I raised with Christ and came out of that water, it happened long before the water. Baptism is a symbol of something true. If you've not been baptized, you're commanded to be baptized. You identify with Jesus Christ. As a believer, you say, this is who I identify with. And he, I am not identifying with my repentance, though you've repented. You don't identify with Jesus taking on the sin of the world, though that was required for you to repent and required for you to be right with God. But you are identifying with the fact that he died in your place and that all of your offenses died with him. God is no longer mad at a Christian. He no longer hates you. He's no longer angry with you at all, ever, though you think it all the time. He's not. The gospel says that he's not. The demons in your ears say that you are, that you have offended God and that you're in probation and that God really doesn't like you very much. But God, who is the writer of this gospel, said that you are completely dead in everything that's offended him. And when, he, when you rose, you arose to newness of life. This is, this is Romans chapter 6. You arose to newness of life to walk as a new creature. Okay, It's where, the, it's where they got new life. The Christian school is named New Life because when you died, the, the sinner that opposed God died. 
and now there's nothing to oppose God. You're dead because Jesus died. When you were married to Jesus through your faith, when you were amalgamated with him, when you became part of him and he became part of you, and it will never be teased apart. You'll never be separated. When he died, you died. When he raised, you raised. And when you raised, you raised to newness of life, to walk in victory. And you walk in liberty. And you walk in, in thrill and in joy. Because you have nothing but joy to look forward to. Because Jesus took it all. He paid for our sins and took it all. So when we are baptized, we are baptized in obedience as a picture of his death and his resurrection and our death and our resurrection in him. Hallelujah. My face is hot. <laughs>